This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Welcome everyone to episode seven of the All Things Relevant show. And today's show, we have a very special guest, Dr. William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig is a Christian theologian, apologist, and philosopher. He's a research professor at Biola University and has debated contemporary atheist scholars such as Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Peter Atkins. How are you, Dr. Craig? I'm doing great, Kirsten. Thanks for having me on. And I do want to mention, too, my affiliation with Houston Baptist University. Uh, oh, okay, I think I forgot that. If I left that out. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to ask, you know, we're, we're kind of going through a global pandemic, so just how, how are you doing and um, some of the things you've been working on? Well, my wife, Jan, tells other people that Bill has yet to notice that he's in sequestration. Uh, <laughs> I've just been happy as a clam in my home office here, which you see in the background. I finished a book on the historical atom, and now I'm writing the first chapters of my systematic philosophical theology. So this period of time from March until present has been extraordinarily productive for me. Um, and so it's it's been a really good time. Thank you. Yeah, I know a lot of authors and even um, musicians and artists, this has been yeah. their dream to finally be able to stay home, focus on doing their writings or even music and stuff like that. Yeah, I think for people who are artisans and work out of a studio or a workshop, uh, this time can be very good for them. <laughs> okay, so I'm kind of getting into the first topic of uh, the interview is I wanted to discuss about the what most people coin as your most notable idea or theory, which is the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh -huh. But before kind of addressing into the cont contentions that people pose to it, can you briefly explain uh, the premises of the cosmological argument? Yes, this version of the cosmological argument for the existence of God has three very simple steps. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe has a cause. And then you can do an analysis of what it means to be a cause of the universe and a number of striking theological properties come out of such an analysis. The argument leads to the existence of a first, uncaused, beginningless, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful, personal creator of the universe. Okay, so I'm um, kind of getting into the, there were two main contentions I saw that was really interesting that people were opposed to the um, cosmological argument. And the first one was that um, the start of the universe doesn't necessarily need to be um, from a divine creator, but that it can be explained through other multiple theories such as the multiverse or even other scientific means that we just necessarily haven't found yet. Um, I actually see that as an appeal to ignorance fallacy, but yeah. I just want to get your contentions on that. Well, it's important to understand that that sort of objection is not an objection to the first premise, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. It's really a denial of the second premise, that the universe began to exist. It wants to find some way to avoid the truth of that premise and to postulate an eternal, uh, infinitely past universe. Um, the problem is that there are good philosophical arguments against the infinitude of the past that the objector would have to answer. And then scientifically, 
all of the evidence that we have says that the universe began to exist. Uh, even the multiverse, if there is such a thing, can't be extrapolated to the infinite past. It would also need to have a beginning at some time in the finite past. So um, I don't think that this um, is a plausible defeater for the second premise that the universe began to exist. Yeah, so um, there was a, the, the second main contention where I found a lot more interesting was there was an article on Medium by a secular humanist. Uh, he was referring to one of your debates with Sean Carroll, and I just wanted, wanted to read off what he actually wrote, which is, Sean Carroll owned William Lane Craig in a debate showing with a photograph of Villainkin's co-author Alan Guth stating, Craig was wrong. The Guth-Villainkin theorem did not prove the universe had a beginning. It only showed that on classical assumptions it would have. But we know on classical assumptions, we know classical assumptions are false. We live in a quantum universe governed by general relativity. William Lane Craig conveniently never admits Villainkin's beginning of time thesis is a fully articulated godless origin theory, and thus, in fact, refuting the Kalam cosmological arguments, assertion that a mechanical cause cannot explain it. What makes what makes it a god caused it, um, let alone the Christian god? Who caused God? You can't escape infinite regress without special pleading. If God didn't need a creator, then by that same logic, neither did the universe. The universe could be eternal. So I, like most people, I don't necessarily have an interest or even is well versed in the realm of quantum mechanics or quantum physics. Uh, could you actually explain what he was trying to propose in his contention and sure. how you would actually answer that? There, there are so many fallacies <laughs> in that one quotation that it's hard to know where to begin. The series of questions at the end um, are all uh, easily answered. Uh, for example, why doesn't God need a cause, but the universe does? Answer, because the cause of the universe is timeless and therefore never began to exist. But the universe, by contrast, uh, did begin to exist based upon the philosophical and scientific arguments that I give. So it's not special pleading at all for God. In fact, I don't even identify the cause of the universe as God, but simply as a being having those properties that I mentioned earlier. Now, with regard to the scientific evidence, um, the prejudice of the commentator is very evident in that he thinks that Sean Carroll's showing this little picture of Alan Guth holding a little sign saying the universe is probably eternal constitutes a refutation of peer-reviewed scientific publications. That is simply unscholarly. Uh, a, a picture of somebody holding a little plaque with a sign on it does not refute uh, scientific peer-reviewed publications like the board guth vilenkin theorem. Now, I found out sometime after the debate exactly what prompted Guth to do this little trick for Carroll. Uh, he revealed this to one of my debate opponents um, at the University of Liverpool, Daniel Kame. And what it turned out is that Guth was avoiding the implications of the board guth vilenkin theorem by adopting Sean Carroll's own model of the origin of the universe, which I had already refuted in the debate. This is a model of the universe 
that postulates a reversal of the arrow of time at some point in the finite past. In other words, the arrow of time flips over and runs in the opposite direction. So there's a kind of mirror universe, like the the bottom of an hourglass, and we're the top of the hourglass going in one direction, and then there's this mirror universe, as it were, in which time is running in the opposite direction. Now, not only is such a model of the universe grossly unphysical uh, and therefore impossible, but more fundamentally, it doesn't avoid the beginning of the universe because that mirror universe with time running in the opposite direction is in no sense in our past. It is not earlier than our universe. In fact, what you actually have here are two universes going in opposite directions that have a common beginning point. So far from avoiding the beginning of the universe, it actually postulates a beginning of the universe. Uh, and that's why Vilenkin says that there are no successful cosmological models that avoid the absolute beginning of the universe, not even Vilenkin's own quantum cosmological model. It also has a beginning uh, and does not have uh, an infinite past. It, it has an absolute beginning. Vilenkin's attempt to refute the implications of the Kalam argument is to deny premise one, that the universe, uh, or rather that uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Vilenkin wants to maintain that the universe literally came into being from nothing, uh, uncaused, which I think is metaphysically impossible. But you can see that's a quite different uh, kettle of fish than denying the second premise that the universe began to exist. Yeah, so when it comes to the Kalam cosmological argument, I thought it was really interesting because you incorporate so many different branches of uh, um, schools of thought when it comes to philosophy, theology, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, where it's such a complicated... Uh, we, it, it, the basic premises aren't complicated, but the debate raging around it is so so um, huge because there's so many components where you have to deduct and reason. Yeah, it's like an iceberg. The part you see above the surface is so simple a junior high school student could mm -hmm. memorize the three steps of the argument. <laughs> but below the surface, nine-tenths of the iceberg involve questions about the nature of the actual versus potential infinite, set theory and mathematics, general relativity, thermodynamics, uh, quantum mechanics. Uh, it, it's, it will take you as deep as you want to go at the same time being so simple uh, on the surface level that anyone can understand it. <laughs> so uh, kind of moving into the um, more ethics and morality when it comes to uh, addressing uh, the, the Christian God. So we've seen a rise in popularity that, um, with the idea that humans can create a consistent and successful moral framework without really the need for religion, and that religion was kind of just a way of means for explaining what's right and wrong, but we can, but, but that humans have actually evolved in a way where we can create our own um, moral framework without the need for a religion or a god, whether through it's the means of rationalism or empiricism. So we saw this with Immanuel Kant and his idea of Kantian ethics, and that really the only moral guiding or framework we need is the categorical imperative to tell what is um, morally right or morally wrong. 
or even John Stuart Mill when it comes to utilitarianism, which is actually still evolving today, which is two-level utilitarianism. Um, so trying to, uh, so the goal of life is trying to increase the amount of pleasure and well-being for as many people as possible. And um, even not only just in the political sphere when it comes to libertarian ethics, uh, outside of politics, outside of society, that morality is really just dictated by um, two main principles, which is the non-aggression principle and respect for property rights. So what is your um, um, opinions on the ideas that we can create a moral um, framework without the need for God? I think that it's certainly possible for human beings to create a moral or ethical system without reference to God, so long as they presuppose the intrinsic value of human beings. If you presuppose or just assume the intrinsic value of human beings, then you can come up with an ethical system with which the Christian will largely agree. The question is that presupposition on naturalism, on atheism, why think that human beings have intrinsic moral value or objective moral duties? Honestly, I can't see any reason to think that on an atheistic scenario that moral values are objective and binding rather than merely spin-offs of the socio-evolutionary biological um, uh, perspective. Uh, so it's that fundamental presupposition, I think, that um, begs the question. So kind of leading into another subject of this is like... Um... Um, it's, it's defining what personhood actually is. So we, we hold the premise that every human being already has intrinsic moral value, but there are actually even um, atheists and other scholars that believe that personhood or value is actually not given at the moment of birth or given at the moment of conception, but that, that there are varying factors that we need to do to earn a level of personhood. So this is actually even used yeah. um, in the abortion arguments that um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they will concede the fact that a fetus is a biological human being, but it does not have the level of philosophical personhood and value as a person outside of the womb would have. Yeah. Well, this, I think, gets into your conception of human beings. I think of human beings on the biblical model as body-soul composites. Um, we are not just a bag of chemicals on bones. Rather, we have a human soul or mind um, which develops over the course of time and comes to full fruition um, in adulthood. And so I would say that the developing fetus is a human being in the earliest stages of its development. It is not a potential person, rather it is a person with potential. And if left uninterrupted and allowed to develop normally, it will grow into an adult member of the human species. And any attempt to cut it off before then, I think, will be uh, conventional and arbitrary. Okay, so um, one uh, there's another interesting topic I would like to discuss when it comes to um, your position when it comes to... Uh, um, uh, addressing the criticisms of your position on God's divine right to destroy the Canaanite, the oh. Canaanites and sponsor other acts of quote unquote evil and atrocities in the New Test in the Old Testament uh, through the use of um, the Jews and the Israelites. So um, even Richard Dawkins talks about this how 
one of the one of one of the many reasons why he won't debate you is yeah. the idea that you think it's um, morally okay for God to sponsor those acts and um, allow the death of those children, and he sees that as morally incomprehensible, which is why he won't even go to a scholarly debate with you. Yes, that's one of the many reasons that Dawkins has given for refusing to debate me or even to shake my hand. <laughs> um, but you know, the problem is, Kirsten. I've been very anxious and eager to hear some criticism of my view, but I've never heard one criticism of it. All I hear is emoting, um, people just angrily denouncing it. But I lay out a moral theory there called divine command theory, according to which um, God is intrinsically good um, and issues commands to us that then constitute our moral duties. But since God does not issue commands to himself, God has no moral duties to fulfill, and therefore he's free to do whatever he wishes so long as it's consistent with his morally good nature. And what I argue in my piece on the slaughter of the Canaanites is that the slaughter of the Canaanites represented the just judgment of God upon a culture that was indescribably reprobate, uh, that was practicing gross bestiality with animals, uh, as well as child sacrifice to their gods, uh, and that Israel was merely the instrument by which God brought judgment upon these uh, kingdoms in Canaan, just as God many centuries later would use pagan Babylon as an instrument of his judgment upon Israel itself. Um, and so as I look at the people involved, I ask, has God wronged any of these people? And I couldn't think of anybody that God wrongs in doing this. And so this is a dispassionate ethical theory offered in good faith, and I await some sort of substantive criticism of it rather than merely angry emotional denunciations. So um, one of uh, an interesting contention I found, there was a video when it comes to regarding that. So I don't know if you referenced, but you said that um, in, in killing the, the, the children before they reached the age of accountability, God was actually saving them from living out a immoral lifestyle, would have, which would have damned them to hell, right? Am I correct? Yes, that's right. That so, it's not clear that God wronged these children by taking them to heaven early. I think God has the right to give and take life as he chooses. And as you know, many children do die in infancy, and I believe in the salvation of infants. So by taking the lives of these children early, um, God ensured their eternal salvation and happiness. So when in a video I found, there was someone um, critiquing this argument as not, um, what would say, morally consistent when it comes to your views on abortion in the sense that um, although those children may have had those lives taken early and that they would have gone to heaven, it, you would have to apply that same principle when it comes to abortion, where it, it wouldn't be wrong on your moral form of consistency because, in a sense, God's taking those children away um, before they would even have a chance to live out, what would say, a, a moral life, a lifestyle. I think it, here it's vital to remember what I just explained a moment ago, Kirsten. 
God has issued commandments to us that constitute our moral duties. And one of these moral duties is thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. And so this is our moral duty to fulfill. Uh, even if it would be beneficial to some child to abort him, that would be a violation of our moral duty and therefore would be wrong. But God, as I say, doesn't issue commands to himself and so has no moral duties to fulfill. He can do anything that he wants so long as it's consistent with his perfectly good nature. And it seems to me that if he wants to bring these children home to heaven early, that is perfectly consistent with his good nature. So it's absolutely critical who's involved here. Is it people who have moral duties to fulfill or God who has no moral duties to fulfill? Okay. Um, so uh, moving on to the next subject, um, this is something that I found really interesting, I think, when it comes to me and a lot of um, people growing up in the church, is this idea that we're kind of led to already just assume and believe that the Bible is uh, his, uh, is the is spiritually divine and influence and an influence form of authority, and not until really recently have we have I tried um, understanding why is the reason that it's divine and why does it have a form of authority. So, kind of my question is, um, on what aspects is the Bible really historically reliable, and what proof is it that it's spiritually divine? Because uh, it wasn't necessarily written by one um, historical or physical writer. It wasn't written by Jesus Christ. It was a collection of books um, from people through a wide and vast um, course of history. And that was actually put together by the early Christian church, uh, which is um, which is from man. So my, my, my question is, what makes the Bible historically reliable and what makes it divine? Um, this is a question that I am writing on even today before we... Uh, uh, got together. I, I'm in my systematic philosophical theology. I'm writing a chapter on the doctrine of Scripture, and this is something that is not part of mere Christianity, as I call it. That is to say, the central doctrines of the Christian faith, like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, and so forth. There's actually quite a diversity of views among Christian theologians concerning Scripture, its reliability, and its divine nature. I would say among many Christian theologians today, they don't think that Scripture is a divine revelation, but rather they would think it's a human witness to divine revelation, that the revelation of God is a self-revelation of God preeminently in Jesus Christ and his teaching, and the New Testament is the human witness to that self-revelation of God. And so they wouldn't be disturbed by errors or inconsistencies that might exist in this human witness. Now, other theologians, which I think include myself, would say that Scripture is indeed divine, and what makes it divine is that it is inspired. Uh, and the word here that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed. It is as though the Scripture is the Word of God to us, because although it was written by a diversity of human 
authors at different times and places in history with different gifts and uh, different styles. Nevertheless, all of it is under the divine superintendence so that it becomes God's word to us. It is like appropriated speech. Uh, for example, where, say, President Trump would tell his press secretary to issue a statement in his name, and Trump reads it and then signs off on it, so that even though it was written by the press secretary, it becomes Donald Trump's word to the public. It would be an example of appropriated speech. And I think the New Testament can be understood uh, plausibly in that way, and that would allow it to have all of the human uh, qualities that it does, and yet still be God-breathed. And I've offered a theory of divine inspiration in support of this. It's called a middle knowledge perspective, uh, according to which God knew exactly what the authors of Scripture would freely write in certain circumstances that they would be in. So he knew that if there were a Paul, for example, and he were in such and such circumstances, he would freely write the letter of the Romans or to the Romans. And superintending it in this way, Romans becomes God's word to us, as well as Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Now, with respect to your other question about the historical credibility of the Gospels, there has really been a revolution in New Testament studies over the last, oh, half century in this regard. Back in the middle of the 20th century, it was widely believed that the Gospels were legendary stories about Jesus of Nazareth, which had become overlaid with Greco-Roman mythology. And what happened in the second half of the century is what has been called the Jewish reclamation of Jesus. That is to say, New Testament scholars came to appreciate in a very self-conscious way that Jesus was a Jew and that all the disciples were Jews and that the Gospels are Jewish documents. So that the way to understand Jesus of Nazareth properly is not against the backdrop of Greco-Roman mythology, but rather against the backdrop of first century Palestinian Judaism. And this has led to the what's been called the eclipse of uh, mythology in historical Jesus studies. It's no longer a relevant category. Rather, the Gospels are to be studied against the backdrop of uh, first century Judean culture. And when you do study it in that way, the historical credibility of the Gospels uh, really emerges so that most scholars today would now say that the four Gospels uh, provide a very credible historical accounts of the life, teaching, and death of Jesus. And I would just add very quickly that the majority of scholars today also believe that the Gospels reliably and factually report the death, the burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and the transformation in his first disciples to believing that God had raised him from the dead. So the evidence for a miraculous 
view of Jesus, uh, crucified and risen from the dead, is one that would be widely accepted by New Testament historians today. Yeah, so I think, especially when it comes to people coming from my background, kind of growing up in a traditional, I would say, evangelical Protestant um, church, that we've been ingrained in our idea, this idea of sola scriptura, that the Bible is the only form of a, the, the only form of perfect authority, that it's inerrant, it's, um, it's every every single word is inspired and written by God through people, and that when when we get that idea, it's hard for some of us, especially reading the Bible, where there are things that we don't really understand, where we we would find like we would say contradictions or um, mm-hmm. confusing verses that would puzzle us that doesn't wouldn't necessarily make sense with uh, the consistency of what we read maybe a chapter or a book before. So like when it comes to um, that issue, what advice would you give to um, people struggling with that? Okay. Well, two pieces of advice. First, as I've already indicated, you don't need a doctrine of inerrancy to find in the Gospels historically reliable factual reports about the life, death, teachings, and resurrection of Jesus. When I said that the majority of scholars concur in this, I'm talking about non-evangelical scholars who just treat the Gospels as ordinary first century documents written in the Greek language and handed down uh, out of the first century to us. So on a purely historical level, um, we have, I think, great confidence in the reliability of the Gospel records of the life of Jesus. The second thing um, that I would say is that Everybody who articulates carefully a sophisticated doctrine of inerrancy will say that it means that the scripture is truthful in all that it teaches. It does not mean that the scripture is truthful in everything it says. Uh, There are lots of statements in scripture that are not literally true. I mean, think of the parables of Jesus, for example. These are just stories to illustrate a point. And Jesus himself says things like, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, you can move mountains. Now, nobody thinks that Jesus is in error there because the mustard seed is not, in fact, the smallest of all seeds, that there are orchids that have tinier seeds. Why? Because the purpose of Jesus' saying is not to teach botany. It's to teach a lesson about faith. And so it's just prejudicial to point to things like that and say, aha, aha, the scripture has committed an error here. The scripture is truthful or inerrant in all that it means to teach. And that means then that when we read the scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what is the Lord trying to teach us through this passage? Okay. So, um, and then, so the next subject is, I would like to discuss, um, uh, this is an issue that's actually um, been, I'd say, um, uh, influencing me a lot is um, the subject that, um, how is it fair that for God to enact eternal judgment against people who grow up in environments where Christianity is um, either rarely promoted or actively persecuted? 
So things like uh, an example, like a, a, a Christian in Syria or so a person in Syria who where um, Christianity is practically getting run out or where there's it's very hard to get to be able to get a means to find a church or let alone a Bible. Um, how is it fair for God to be able to uh, judge that person at, uh, to eternal damnation um, compared to another person who grew up in America where um, they're influenced heavily by religion, whether they're growing up in a church or they have a Bible and things like that. And this is kind of leading into another subject, a two-part question, uh, like the idea that uh, uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, whether that we're predestined towards eternal damnation or special people have been elected uh, to be people of God. And in yeah. the whole essence, do we really have free will to find Christ? Okay. That's a good follow-up because I take neither the Calvinist nor the Arminian position. I'm what's called a Molinist. Molinism is a doctrine uh, that was um, enunciated by Luis Molina, a Jesuit counter-reformer who died in the year 1600. And Molina affirms both divine sovereignty and human freedom. And he argues that God knows exactly how every person would freely behave in any set of possible circumstances that he might place him in. So, for example, God knows what you would have done if you had been in the position of Pontius Pilate as the procurator of Judea in the first century. He knows what you would have done if you had been in Peter's place in the courtyard and they said, aren't you one of his disciples? God knows what every person would freely do in any set of circumstances he might place him. Now, those circumstances will include certain gifts of God's grace and drawing of the Holy Spirit to bring people to Christ. And Molina believes that God provides sufficient grace for salvation to every human being he creates so that no one, no one will be lost because of historical or geographical accident. Rather, everyone has the opportunity to respond to God's grace and be saved. Now, for some people, that will not come through the preaching of the gospel. For people who lived prior to the time of Christ, they couldn't be expected to place their faith in Christ in order to be saved. Rather, they had to respond to the light that they have. And in the same way, there are people living today in Central Asia, um, in certain parts of the Amazon and other remote areas where they've never heard the gospel of Christ, and they won't be judged on the basis of their response to it. Rather, they'll be judged on the basis of their response to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. Paul says in Romans 1 that all persons, no matter where and when they're born, can see from the creation around them the eternal power and deity of the Creator, and from the moral law that is written on their hearts, they sense the demands of God's moral law and their culpability before him as sinners, and hence their need of divine forgiveness. And someone who has God's general revelation in nature and conscience and flings himself upon the mercy of this God of nature uh, for salvation, I believe, will have the benefits of Christ's atoning death applied to him 
even though he has no conscious knowledge of Christ. He would be like a person, um, like the fellow in uh, Downton Abbey, uh, Matthew Crawley, who suddenly finds out that he is the heir of an estate that he never knew he had. Um, these people would be saved through Christ, even though they had no knowledge of Christ on the basis of their response to the light that they have. So I think that we can trust God's love and justice, Kirsten, to judge everyone at his judgment seat fairly uh, based upon the light that he has given them. I also think it's possible that God has so ordered history based upon his knowledge of how people would freely respond in whatever circumstances he puts them in, that people who would freely respond to the gospel and be saved if they heard it are born at a time and place in history where they do hear it. So that no one who would be saved uh, through the preaching of the gospel, but condemned through his response to general revelation, will be damned. Uh, he, he will be born at a time and place in history where he gets to hear the gospel. And if that's even coherent, if that's possible, it just completely removes the sting of this objection. So um, kind of moving into the, the scientific um, subjects of this, um, you, you've seen uh, um, people trying to say that uh, atheism is um, growing in the sense that since science is also growing, that science is giving us the explanation for the creation of the universe and the creation of um, man in general. So, uh, look, looking at especially evol evolution, that um, we don't that religion was only a simple or folk folklore ways of explaining how we got here. Oh, there was a god. Um, but now that we've seen um, scientific developments and people proposing the arguments that uh, that human life is possible from uh, from a biological pers perspective in the sense of evolution, or even looking back at um, we're still uh, widely debated today, the idea that uh, whether the universe was created literally in seven days or whether it was created millions of years ago, which, um, mil with, which a lot of Christian denominations actually still um, disagree upon. Mm -hmm. So kind of your, your opinions on yeah. the scientific discoveries of that. As a Christian theologian and philosopher, I think it's very important that I have an educated worldview with respect to what contemporary science tells us about the world we live in. And so I've invested a good deal of time in the study of the contemporary scientific worldview. And I can say fairly confidently that I think that modern physics is more open to the existence of a creator and designer of the universe than at any time in recent history. The idea that there is a creator of the universe who brought the universe into being a finite time ago is fully in accord with contemporary astrophysics. And the idea of a designer of the universe who established the fundamental constants and quantities of the laws of nature so that the universe will be life permitting. These views are uh, well established in the scientific community and uh, are on the table in contemporary discussions. Moreover, the problem of the applicability of mathematics to the physical world remains an unsolved philosophical problem in contemporary physics. How is it that the physical phenomena are describable by 
these elegant mathematical formulae, which are invented by mathematicians for aesthetic reasons having nothing to do with contemporary physical reality. I think that theism provides uh, by far the best explanation of the applicability of mathematics. So in the areas of creation, uh, design, uh, applicability of mathematics, the contemporary Christian stands solidly within mainstream science. Now, within the field of biology, where you have the biological theory of evolution as the reigning paradigm, I think that it's very important to understand that the biological theory of evolution is not in any way atheistic or hostile to supernatural superintendents or even miraculous intervention. The impression to the contrary by both proponents and opponents alike is due to a misunderstanding of the word random mutation. People think that random mutation means pointless, without purpose, without a goal. And that is not the way in which evolutionary biologists use the word. When they say that mutations are random, what they mean is that they occur without a view toward the benefit of the host organism in which they occur. They occur irregardless of the benefit to the host organism. Um, and that sense of random is not at all incompatible with purpose, design, and even divine causation. For example, God could cause a mutation in a species to produce a disabled antelope that makes easy prey for its enemies. Uh, and that could be God's purpose in doing that. And yet that would count as a random mutation because it doesn't occur for the benefit of the antelope itself. So once you understand this, I think it removes any grounds for theological opposition to the biological theory of evolution. Any doubts that I have about the theory are scientific, not theological in nature. So uh, in, in the sense that when it comes to, uh, I kind of want to get your opinions on the whole Genesis creation. Mm -hmm. So would your, would your um, belief be that um, God had literally created the universe in seven days and created Adam and Eve um, out of the dust? Or would you believe in a sense that God may have used uh, biological evolutionary ways to create um, what we'd have the earth today or even humans? I think the narrative is quite consistent with a figurative interpretation that would allow for God's use of prior biological organisms. And I think there are indications in the text that suggest that. For example, do you notice uh, when God creates the vegetation and the animals on the third day, he does not say simply, let there be vegetation, uh, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind and plants bearing seed after their kind, and it was so. It doesn't say that. What it says is God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Uh, plants bearing seed after their kind and fruit trees bearing fruit after its kind. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation 
bearing seed after its kind, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kinds. Now, unless the ancient author of Genesis imagined this as like a film being run on fast forward where the little plants would pop out of the ground and grow up into big apple trees and the blossoms would fly out and the fruit would pop out. This couldn't possibly have happened in 24-hour days. So I think in the text itself, there are, there are indications that the author is not thinking of 24-hour periods of time, that this is figurative language. And the creation of the animals is described in much the same way. Let the earth bring forth these animals. Uh, and so once you get past this, I think, rather wooden literalism about seven consecutive 24-hour days, then the narrative is just completely open to how God may have brought about these various life forms. So um, I will. I kind of wanted to get into a little bit of the social aspect. Just one question about this. Um, so in in the rise of I think so in the actually the decline of I think Christianity as a morality inside of the United States. There's been a lot of um, traditional, mostly evangelical Christian groups that have been really concerned about this. So um, especially looking at the evangelical church with their obsession of wanting to really get uh, politically involved. So allowing Christian uh, politicians, Christian lawmakers, uh, Christian influence in today's society. There's been a lot of groups that have been um, wanting a creation of, I would say, a, a, not a theocracy, but a very Christian-sponsored and influenced form of government. And my, my question would be, would that even be conducive or even be uh, acceptable from a Christian and constitutional perspective, trying to go back to, like, I would say, uh, an early Old Testament Jewish state? Oh, or a Jewish form of government. No, Would that no, even? No, no, that that that's completely unrealistic, and I think undesirable. <laughs> um, the Constitution has both uh, a free exercise clause that guarantees religious freedom for all citizens, uh, whether they're Christian, Jewish, atheist, whatever, uh, and then also a restriction that the government shall make no establishment of religion, and we need to be ardent. Uh, proponents of both the free exercise clause and the establishment clause as Christians. That's what we need to do. Now, I think what your question does underline, though, is the importance of character today, which seems to have deteriorated so horribly as I watch the evening news and I see these beatings and looting on television. I I'm just bewildered. I think, what kind of character do these people have that they would beat another person senseless and injure that person, that they would loot a store and steal things from it, that they would destroy other people's property and try to um, wreck things that don't belong to them. I, I, I just can't even imagine what kind of character the people who are perpetrating these deeds must have. And so I think we are in desperate, desperate need of the traditional qualities of public civility, of love of one's neighbor, goodwill, charity, uh, fair-mindedness, nonviolence. Um, we can be advocates of these 
components of a kind of public or civil morality without trying to impose sectarian Christian beliefs on our society. Yeah, this is a lot, uh, uh, interesting discussion I would have a lot with my friends and people who go to my church that the responsibility of the church really necess necessarily isn't to legislate or even influence political government, but this these atrocities and these um, moral behaviors that we disdain in today's societies, that's the responsibility of the church to be able to change. So whether it comes to our own moral character and how we approach people that 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 government can only do so much in those realms but I, the 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 purpose of changing hearts and changing minds yeah. is the is up to the church and up to the christian i think that's true kirsten but i would want to remind all of us that as citizens we do have the responsibility to vote our convictions uh and therefore i just cannot imagine how someone would vote for some of these local mayors uh, <laughs> and other officials that coddle these criminals and refuse to enforce the law and to protect innocent victims from these vandals and thugs. I think in that case, it's entirely proper to speak out politically and to exercise um, your, your American civil rights to, to vote for um, officials and representatives, it will uphold the values that you hold dear. Yeah, so it's, it's in essence trying to balance the idea of the separation between us, a certain level of separation between church and state that you should still uh, be politically involved in the responsibility of a citizen to vote and make change when you yeah. see it, but also um, never forgetting the underlying reason for Christianity and your purpose as a, as a Christian. Yeah, you know, t uh, traditionally, Christians have been very ardent about the free exercise clause guaranteed to us in the Bill of Rights. But we need to be also vigilant about the establishment clause. We're going to be very glad, I think, someday that the courts have said that the government cannot establish certain religious viewpoints or impose them on the church. Because otherwise, I think the liberty of our churches our Christian colleges and universities, our Christian nonprofit organizations could well be under threat from a heavy-handed government that would seek to impose its agenda on these institutions. So we need to be vigilant both with respect to the establishment clause that the government will not establish any sort of religious practice, but then also with the free exercise clause that it will not inhibit the free exercise of religious uh, liberty. So kind of, kind of wrapping this up when it comes to the, the whole subject of apologetics in general, um, mm. I feel that it is a movement that's growing when it comes to young people. That's a necessary movement um, to um, keep, keep young people in the church and not being so um, anti-science or anti-philosophy towards our own doubts or our own questions when it comes to Christianity. I think it's healthy be, to be able to, to search and to research um, uh, answers to our questions that uh, in the end may not necessarily be answered uh, fully to our own extent, huh. but just yeah. but just just getting uh, just trying to find an explanation for ourselves that we may or may not even be content with. So what is kind of your advice for uh, young people like myself when it comes to dealing with doubt, dealing with uh, questions about God? 
Um, I laugh because one of the members of my defenders class once said to me, Bill, I came to this class looking for answers, but all I find is more questions. <laughs> and that's true. The, the Christian faith is an inexhaustible uh, depth or treasure of things to think about. And I would encourage people to be intellectually engaged as Christians. Not only will this make you more effective in sharing the gospel, but frankly, it's going to make you a more well-rounded and interesting person. If you are conversant with the science and philosophy of our day, with a little bit of history and mathematics, you're going to be a, a lot more interesting person for having this kind of well-rounded education. Now, of course, there will be unanswered questions. And I think the trick is, how do you prevent unanswered questions from becoming uh, gnawing doubts? And there I would say we need to remember that the Christian faith is not just an intellectual venture. It's also a spiritual venture of walking closely with God. And therefore, we need to be very mindful of our spiritual walk, having daily Bible reading and prayer, um, corporate worship time, participation in Christian outreach and service. All of these spiritual disciplines help to cultivate and foster a closer relationship with God, which can help us to live victoriously with unanswered questions. But then, Every now and then, you can have the chance to take one of these unanswered questions and to go to work on it and pursue it into the ground until you come to intellectual satisfaction. And I can personally testify that one of the most exhilarating experiences in the Christian life is to take one of these unanswered questions that's been nagging you, pursue it into the ground, until you come to a satisfactory answer uh, and have finally arrived at a position on that issue. That brings such tremendous freedom uh, and joy and praise to God. And so I would encourage people to do that when they have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, I can attest to that feeling too. It's it's one of the best feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so just, just kind of... Um, Ending this, do you, uh, uh, what sources can we find your work? So YouTube, Instagram, uh, things like that. I know I'll, have, I'll right. put your website up here on the. There, yeah, there you go. The main place is the website reasonablefaith.org. Everything there is free. I want to draw people's attention, particularly to the animated videos that are on the lower part of the homepage. These are wonderful five-minute animated videos on the most important arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. Um, in addition to the website, we have two YouTube channels, uh, reasonablefaith.org and Dr. Craig videos, and there are thousands of uh, videos available of debates, lectures, interviews, and so forth available on YouTube. Um, Finally, I may, might mention our Reasonable Faith Facebook page, where lots of embedded videos are also placed, uh, and people can comment and discuss these. Well, thank you for coming on, Dr. Craig. It was an honor to have you. I hope you're going to stay safe and stay well. Thank you. Thanks, Kirsten. Great to be with you. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.